I think that is what people are attracted to when they come into the community, that there isn't a white gaze. It really is about, you know, self-determination and validating our own hopes and dreams and our own stories and being able to tell them. That is what people see and what they value when they come to our community. Hey, y'all. It's Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company. This week, Eric and I chatted with our friend, Glory Edom, creator of Well-Read Black Girl. Well-Read Black Girl started in 2015 as an Instagram book club for Black women, femmes, and non-binary folks to find community in discussing their favorite books. But at Well-Read Black Girl meetings, they don't just talk about the books. They actually talk to the authors. Because of that, the impact of Well-Read Black Girl has been felt not just among its members, but in the publishing industry at large. Since its inception, Well-Read Black Girl has grown to include a newsletter, festival, two anthology books, and now a podcast with the same name. Join us as Glory walks us through Well-Read Black Girl's origin, its impact, and what's to come. Let's get into it right after this short break. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Everyone knows that the best way to tell a good story is over a good drink. Spirit in a Bottle, Tells and Drinks from Tito's Handmade Vodka, brings them together. In its first-ever cocktail book, Tito's offers fans recipes, mixology tips, and a never-before-seen look at its journey, from a one-room distillery to becoming America's favorite vodka. Order your copy today at titosvodka.com book. Read it and sip with Tito's. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Glory, we know you very well, and we know Well-Read Black Girl very well. But for our audience, those of them who might not know, you know, what Well-Read Black Girl is, tell us what it is and why you started it. Oh, that's a great question. And I'm just so happy to be here with both of you talking (laughs) about, like, life and books and everything in between. When I first started, if I'm being completely honest, it, it has been just like an evolution, right? Mm-hmm. So when I first started, I was looking for friendship. I was mm. meet, like hoping to meet people mm. and like have friends, which I do now. Wow. <laughs> but like I really was hoping to just meet people one-on-one and talk to them about the books that they loved. You know, I had this vision of us just coming together and having like a circle and a collective of talking to one another about the characters that shaped us and the chapters and the books that really kind of left a formative impact. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of Maya Angelou's Mm -hmm. Why the Cage Bird Sings and Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Like I was thinking of all those like really foundational texts and I wanted to build off of that. And I felt like there was a gap in the industry. Nobody else was doing it. And when I started, there was this excitement and this enthusiasm. And it probably wasn't until maybe the 
maybe the third or fourth book club, we had a conversation with Margot Jefferson that I was like, oh, this can be something. I wanted mm. to go to that one. I couldn't make it. Listen, <laughs> it was the third book club we had. Margot Jefferson. Yeah. Like, that's a big deal, yeah. you know? And I think it was after her. I was like, oh, wait, like, this is something. <laughs> I want to hop in and ask you real quick. What does well-read mean to you? Oh, it's a good question. You, I, I, I borrowed it from you because you ask it to the people on your podcast. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. So for me, being well-read is about investigation and curiosity. Mm. It is not mm. about the, the text per se. It's not a list of all the like best read books from 1920 to 2022. It is about whatever you read and being able to sit with it and analyze it. And then from there, have a conversation with someone else and share it. Taking the knowledge that you have and being just an open person and being mm. able to teach it to someone else. Like it allows the next person to say, I want to read that too. I'm just as curious as you are. As you see, I'm pretty hype and I love to go down a rabbit hole. And so when you ask me about books, I'm like, okay, this is what I read and this is what it made me think of. And then I Googled this on JSTOR and then I saw that like, you know, Janet Jackson read this in 1982. So I'm gonna do it. Like, you know, I go into like, a crazy circle of things. Mm -hmm. And I want you in that circle. And so if you're reading a graphic novel or a mystery or a poem, or you're reading like one of the, like the literary greats, you know, you got Walt Whitman and Toni Morrison on your bookshelf. That's amazing. But can you talk to me about it? Can you bring me into your own world of literature? Mm. And that is how I define being well-read. Mm, that makes so much sense. I love the way it kind of comes together in terms of how all-encompassing that experience can be. It's kind of electric. And it reminds me a little bit of even how you describe the podcast. I think you've described it as like a literary kickback. What made you decide to expand the book club into a podcast? Like, why did, why did it need this iteration? That's a great question. I think that was the next beautiful step for me. It was something that I had been meditating on for a really, really long time. I wanted to have a space where we can get into like the human side of authorship mm. and the difficulties and challenges you may encounter. And I really just wanted to sit longer with them mm. and ask questions about their craft and process and what inspired them. And I was able to do that in my first anthology. And I'm like, how can I take that experience from the book club, from the actual anthology and and transfer that to the podcast where we could hear people's voices. Because that's something I definitely did a lot in college at Howard. I listened to so many audio recordings of authors that I admire. I wanted that. Like, I just felt like the next step. You know, you say on the podcast that you'll obviously be interviewing not only writers, but bookstore owners, literary advocates, and even Wild Red Black Girl members. First episode features, at the end, you have a short interview with Shurikiana Garima, who's co-owner of Sankofa Bookstore, which is a famous bookstore to every Howard student and, and anybody who lives in D.C. Why was it important that the scope of the podcast go beyond author interviews? Again, that circle of life, mm -hmm. that those all those connections, because once the author has written the book, where do you need to go? The bookstore. Mm. Like you need to be able to donate your books to different organizations, mm. to nonprofits, to books behind bars. So like all these things that really affect the lifeline of your book and who it touches. Mm. And I thought first things first, bookstore owners, how they do it, especially 
Black bookstore owners and folks of color where there are not a lot of spaces for us nationwide, unfortunately. They're inc- incredible bookstores, but the Black bookstore owners, that's a special space mm. that is very close to my heart. And Sankofa, as you said, mm. is an institution. I spent many a days <laughs> in that bookstore when I was in college, you know, reading about Marcus Garvey <laughs> and like just, you know, just trying to like soak up whatever energy was in that space and like put it through my toe put it in me, you know? Like, I just wanted to be transformed by it. And Intrigiana is just a legend. She's so, we know a lot about her husband, Haile Karima, mm-hmm. and he is magnificent. And I just want to give her just as much love because she just is a beautiful person, filmmaker, and their partnership and how they run that bookstore is just It's just so abundant. When we say literature and readership, it doesn't just stop at the author. It's way beyond that. I'm so glad you make that point. Because I feel like in the time since Well Read Black Girl was created, like the publishing industry itself has just undergone a pretty, uh, what I see as like a radical change. For you, like what, what effects do you think the club and, you know, even just the community at large have had on the industry? I know for sure that Well Read Black Girl has set an an example. Mm. We have definitely set an example on how to attract readers and find quality authors. We help with visibility. We really show trends. A lot of the books that I first selected in those like early years weren't necessarily like popular picks Mm. or wouldn't be considered Mm. mainstream. That is no longer the case. So when you see this like incredible influx of book clubs that are on Instagram or just have their own platforms, like there's Reese's book club and there's even Roxanne, she has a book club. All those things I feel have been made possible because of the influence I've had on readership. Mm. And in addition to that, I think we all got it from the, you know, the head lady in charge, you know, Oprah Winfrey. Like she was the one who set everything in motion for us. Like, let let me not get it twisted. I had Instagram. She had like our our channels, you know, every time at four o'clock we were watching her on our TV sets, you know. So it's been this incredible thing to witness what Oprah did and how I was able to make it my own. And everyone has done like a spinoff of it. And the publishing industry is just like watching and waiting and like imitating in a lot of ways. And I could even see the success of my first anthology was it opened up another way for other people to say like, oh, I have an idea where I want to create this like um, anthology and it can be sold in a commercial way, Mm -hmm. not just for academia, not for just like the classroom, but Mm -hmm. it can be shared in a commercial setting, which is like, I I take credit for that. I do see like the influence of of my books and they are selling, (laughs) go buy one now. (laughs) You know, like I'm really proud of that. This work has been happening, Mm -hmm. right? The popularity and visibility is now becoming more consistent. So it, I, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, nobody wants to say we've arrived. You know, like folks have arrived. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely, it is getting better, it seems. Yeah, no, I agree. There's so much nuance to mm-hmm. it. But yeah, I I know I have made an impact, okay? <laughs> if someone says otherwise, the, they're, they're trying to play me. Exactly. <laughs> no, like, you are absolutely right. You have made an impact. The phrase, well-read Black girl, has become a shorthand for an entire audience of readers. Um, and that makes yeah. me, on the reader end of things, feel kinship. But I wonder, how have you seen that play out on the publishing side of things? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, for the most part, I'm very enthusiastic about it. And I feel like it's, it's just an, an honor to have that kind of like that notoriety. Mm-hmm. But it's all, like you said, I'm always, I'm protective of my brand and my people because I don't want it to be commodified or co-ops. And I don't want to feel like I'm a token for mm-hmm. something, you know? Yeah. It's really about supporting the authors yeah. and the people of color behind the stories. And if you take something and you manipulate it and like misuse it, it taints the experience. It makes people not trust it. I'm hoping to grow as an institution and have this be a lifelong organization that people Mm -hmm. can like reach back to. So trust is very important. And I do not want the industry by any means to abuse or manipulate what it means to be a well-read Black girl. And I think also there's been a little bit of um, questioning of who can participate Mm. and how and things like Mm. that. And and so I'm very careful to say yes, in terms of like group spaces, it's an infinity space. So we would prefer it to be exclusive to Black women, um, non-binary, femme. Like, this is not about, like, the white gaze or, like, trying to teach someone anti-racism tactics. Like, no, we're not doing that. Like, we're just trying to create a safe space so we can talk to one another and be in conversation and cultivate joy. That's, like, that is our goals. And that's the other joy of, like, doing the podcast. It's, like, everyone can listen and everyone can participate Mm. and they can reimagine what the literary canon is for them. It's interesting because I feel like you can't really talk about books or literature like on our half of the world without kind of engaging this idea of the canon. And it's something like we played around with very informally on on the show. (laughs) But I'm curious, like, how do you see like your work with World Where a Black Girl, you know, as a way of kind of like reshaping or maybe even redefining, you know, what is canon today? Yeah. I mean, that's such a great question. It's a complicated one because I'm just thinking about how we come to even that terminology. Mm -hmm. It's like, is it the the academy that sets forth what the canon is? Is it now the readers that are using social media to change, like, who is gatekeeping, Mm -hmm. you know? And technology has changed those settings for us. It allows for, you know, an everyday person to kind of say, like, this is what I'm excited about and this is what should be like at schools and in libraries. Like I'm looking at the work that Nicole Hannah-Jones is doing with the 1619 Project in creating Mm. a new origin story. How was she able to do that? Yes, of her amazing writing and just her, like her insight and research and her education. But we have to be very clear, like she is a writer at the New York Mm -hmm. Times, you know? Mm -hmm. And because the New York Times supported her her efforts and her brilliance. That is why like this thing was able to be printed by this incredible magazine and given to millions of people. Mm -hmm. So I really believe in coalition building Mm -hmm. and allyship and working together to get these things in the hands of readers because that coalition allows for just like it being more expansive and people can experience. And that's how we change the, like the canon. We do it in partnership with, with other people, you know, it's not this like solo act. I do work with publishers and I do work with my community and there, there's a hand in every way. And I, I hope that the gatekeeping 
can be changed mm-hmm. and like, you know, the ceilings can be shattered, all those things. Well, that's why I get so excited when I see like Lisa Lucas, mm-hmm. who she used to be the head of the National Book Foundation, but now she's a senior vice president of Knopf Doubleday. So, I mean, it's amazing just to see her growth and her at the helm. So, you know, I look at the work of Chris Jackson and Nicole Counts at One World, you know, like having uh, people of color and Black women and men in these positions of leadership. You know, my friend Yadon Israel is is doing his thing as an editor and, you know, inquiring amazing books like all the time, you know. So it's like we need the, we need people on both sides working independently to create their own organizations. And, you know, even at, you know, Mm -hmm. self-publishing, I'm not, I have no qualms about self-publishing either. I just like, I think it all, everything is like interconnected. Like we need all of it. Good example is like Shari Jones, Everyone read and loved American Marriage when it became an Oprah's book club mm. pick. But I had been reading Diary Jones for years. You know, I read Silver Sparrow. I like, I like a, at least 10 years, mm. at least. And what happened, like in the last three, she was an Oprah's book yeah. club pick yeah. and it, and it went Mainstream, right? And now I would say Tiari Jones is, well, she was part of the literary canon. She definitely was part of my canon beforehand. But now everyone now like knows and recognizes her name. It, it changed her life, mm-hmm. that impact. That is what changes the canon. After the break, we'll talk more about well-read Black girls' duty to uplift marginalized voices during this turbulent time in literature. And we'll get to hear about the books that shaped Glory's world. Stay tuned. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The Tito's handmade vodka was ice cold, condensation trickling down the copper metal shaker. It's got to be fresh lime, they drawled. Tart, but balanced. They weren't normally this finicky about cocktail hour. But with Tito's, it had to be perfect. Simple syrup, the final ingredient. The sound of shaking filled the room to the brim. For the perfect pour at next week's book club, try the Tito's Gim Literature. Find the recipe at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof. Crafted to be savored responsibly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You leaned onto it a little bit. 
But I kind of want to, you know, come back to this moment that we're in. You brought up like Nicole and Hannah Jones and the 1619 Project. And, you know, if we think about this time right now, and this is not a new trend, sadly, but the country seems to be in another cycle of, you know, banning books for children and young adults and teens, you know, that speak to basically all types of injustice, both, you know, the, the kind that's happening now and uh, contextualizing that with history. But I'm curious, like, do you see World War Black Girl as like a counterbalance at all to just some of the uh, vitriol that is kind of being directed at Black writers who are trying to, you know, maybe tell the truth or their truth? At the end of the day, I think we are communicating our value through our own lens and we're able to do that without Hmm. reservation or compromise. And I think that is what people are attracted to when they come into the community, that there isn't Mm -hmm. a white gaze. It really is about, you know, self-determination and validating our own hopes and dreams and our own stories and being able to tell them. That is what people see and what they value when they come to our community. And it's also a very aspirational space. Like, it's like, you can do this. Like, I'm I'm not going to um, let you feel incapable, you know? Like, it's like, you if you want to be an author, you can be an author. And this is how, like, this is the steps. I'm going to, like, demystify this process for you. You can ask questions. You can read with us. You can be in fellowship and just have a space for encouragement. And I hope it continues to be that for so many people. Related to book bans, like one of the most vital things that we lose out on when important books are kept from young readers through those types of bans, not just um, having, you know, young children who may not be familiar with those experiences being educated. um, We also lose out on the opportunity for young children of marginalized identities Mm -hmm. to see themselves through literature. I'd like for you to talk to us about the importance of Black women, femmes, non-binary people having books as a reflection of themselves and their interiority. For for me, like books have been so vital to my own healing process. Mm. The first autobiography I ever read actually was <laughs> Frederick Douglass. Yeah, about, like so I think that might be my first. Yeah, like most people, like you, you have to read it in grade school, and like you, you know, that's just like the process. And I remember being so fixated with Frederick Douglass's mm. mother. I was like, who is his mama? <laughs> like they, they kind of mentioned her in the first chapter. I'm like, I'm sure she had a pretty significant like something something in in his life, and we get like one line because mm. slavery, but like you know, like it just was so wild to me that like we didn't know more about the women in his life, you know, like much later, like we learn about his, like his partners and his wife and such. But like, I was like really thinking about his mom. Like I was like, I wonder like how she felt. Like I was in high school just meditating on this. And each book that I read, like it's somehow connects to my own personal experience. And so when I ended up reading Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, I was so mesmerized because she has such an audacity. She has such like a boldness that I had never seen before because I had only like read Frederick Douglass and I've, you know, I had also like read the Du Bois by that mm-hmm. point, you know, the souls of black folks. And I just felt like I had not seen any examples of black womanhood on display and not being meek or submissive or just kind of like closed off. My angel was the one that was like wide and just like so fearless. Mm. And 
breeding that so young, I talk about it so much, is because that is what made me like see I'm like, mm. I can do anything. Like I like this woman has done all the things. You know, we think about the limitations of black women now in 2022. I mean, um, like what yeah. she encountered, like, like I just yeah. saw all of that and it made me start asking questions on like, why do I feel mm. afraid again? Like what, mm. like what this woman is like pouring out her heart and soul on the page. Like she, and she's also talking in her own voice. Like she's writing in a dialect. Like, I mean, it's obviously like English, but she's like has a rhythm and the sound of someone in your ear telling you a secret, mm. you know? And that, that first book, I don't know if I hadn't read that at the age. And, and I did not understand it at 12. I really, really like legit did not get it but like <laughs> I, I like reread it so many times that it became just like it, it became part of my own personhood like I feel it like so intensely it feel like I just remember all of that um, and I think I'm not the only person I experienced like I think so many people that read anything by Maya Angelou feel that and it becomes a universal story mm. it becomes like one of courage and fearlessness and putting your whole life on the page to, in order to heal and become a fuller person. And so that happens when you allow people to write their stories and it doesn't have to be cut off. Like it just, it's so, it's so aspirational and we need more examples of all kinds of stories, you know, like there, we need more disabled stories and more non-binary stories. Like we need more of that. So whoever is looking for a reflection of themselves can go to a bookshelf, can see a piece of art and feel motivated and inspired by it. And I think it's underestimated that like that source of encouragement. I think people underestimate how much it can really change your life. Well, with books, I think it goes beyond representation. It goes beyond just seeing and you actually get to get inside the mind or the heart of a character or of the author in a way that like, it's not just about seeing that person. It's about really knowing that like what's inside your mind is not so strange or, you know, right. or you're not so different from other people. Like, you're not alone. Uh, books make you feel not alone in a way that a movie or a television show can't. <laughs> Girl, you got it right there. Because it's like, what? It's like, what are you thinking? Yeah. You know? It's like the wild things, I think, at nighttime where I'm like by myself, like staring at a wall. I'm like, yo, like, are other people thinking these this weird ass <laughs> shit? Like, am I by myself in this? And it's like, no, there's so many people. Like, and it, like, it spans like generations and decades. Like, like, I mean, everyone's right now is like rereading Passing. It's like, yo, like I, I'm feeling some of the things like she said yes. she wrote that in like 1920. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the generation thing because I think some of the most important work that Well Read Black Girl does is formalize the community mm -hmm. that many Black women find as readers in general. But something I think that the podcast does really well, it highlights how Black people often pass down our love of books like an inheritance. And yeah. in the Toronto Burke episode you know, she talks about, well, you talk, you touch on your love of Maya Angelou. She touches on hers too, which is a big part of her book. Um, but she also talks about how when an elder in her family saw her reading Roots. It was, a, it was an escape. My grandfather introduced political literature to me. He literally saw me reading Roots one day and he was like, oh, oh, you ready? Oh, you reading Roots, so you ready? And he just like opened up a floodgate of of political literature. So between the two of those things, it was, yeah, that's how I grew up. I can see little Toronto reading roots. <laughs> it's, it's so amazing <laughs> to see how. When you think of the person that Toronto Burke is today, there's a clear line mm -hmm. between, you know, that elder giving her those books and the activist that she is today. Um, right. You know, a lot of black folks our age, we fell in love with books 
by reading whatever was around the house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was like Terry McMillan, Eric Jerome Dickey. I definitely read, uh, yeah. I think, Cream in My <laughs> Coffee, <laughs> which I shouldn't have been reading. I didn't understand. Or Nikki Giovanni or, or Maya Angelou, like you said. We we grew up just reading whatever books the adults <laughs> just pulled there out. We go. There we go. Pull out I that Terry McMillan so with the 90s cover. Like... <laughs> it was right there. You never know when you need my material. Okay? You never know. You never know. Okay. A day late and a dollar short, which is literally written from the point of view of a woman who is maybe in her late 50s, early 60s, got me through my freshman year of high school. <laughs> they assigned us Stephen King and Eudora Welty. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, let me read this Terry McMillan <laughs> and get through. Just balance it out. <laughs> Just balance, balance it out. out. But but I wonder, Glory, how do you see that literary lineage between Black folks generationally? And why is that so important? It's so crucial because we are pouring into one another. Like when we read some Terry McMillan or we're reading Nella Larson, like we're connecting to ourselves and understanding where where they started. And I think it becomes like almost foundational for you to read something from uh, an elder, an ancestor. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Bell Hooks, who recently mm. passed. I have all of her books, but I, I mean, I was like pulling them off the shelves, looking at everything I had highlighted mm. over the years and trying to regroup myself yeah. and reorient myself around who mm. she was as a person and how she's like made me, has shaped my feminism, my belief and ideology around love and, you know, how I'm going to, you know, even pour that into my child mm. around motherhood. Like, it's so, it is so wild to see how all these books were connected. Like, I just keep coming back to that because, because you, I mean, you just talked about Terry McMillan and I pulled a book off my bookshelf immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like I had it close, yeah. you know, yeah. like, like, and we all have, it's um, almost like someone should do a study on this. It's like a, a just a familiar feeling and we all get like the same image. Like when mm -hmm. you say the bluest eye, mm -hmm. like what do you think of, you know, it like, I think there's a very clear idea for black women, for black young girls, like what that means. And when all these beautiful people have passed. When uh, Morrison first passed, there was like some kind of conference or like panel on her work. And there ended up being like a, a really heated debate on like who she was like reading for or writing for, I should say, and what it meant. And so some of the editors like were giving comments and then the black women in the room were just like, say, she was writing for us, like point answer. blank, mm. like, period, <laughs> period. Yes. <laughs> like, and, and, and there was a like, real tension, like, like who, what, why? Like, like they were going into, you know, her crafts and and this that and third and they were like mm -mm -mm. black women like period like no more like there's no debate to mm. this and I would say that kind of energy and steadiness that like steadfastness that black women bring to other black women and how they we support each other and how that lineage has continued it's like we we're always gonna pass it down like how I'm going to talk to my child about Morrison is going to be very clear and always have the Black perspective and Black history hmm. at, at the forefront. Like, it's not going to be minimized and just, you know, it's like, oh, it's just the writing. Like, no, it wasn't just the writing. Like, she was writing about Blackness and cultural expression in history. Like, she changed history. And so many other Black writers, like, Audre Lorde and Tony K. Bambara, Paul Marshall, mm. all these women were changing history. It wasn't just writing. They were like these magnetic 
change makers and like foremothers of all of, all of this. Like we couldn't have the Britt Bennett's and the Nicole Dennis mm. Benz if we didn't have their yeah. work as a blueprint and guide for us. And so it, it is so crucial whether you're a reader or a writer to really like study and pay tribute to just like their um yeah. They're visioning, you know, and so that's another thing that like we were able to take from these books and just all of it. It's just like having a vision. They all had such clear visions of who they were and how they wanted to change the world. You brought up the fact that you are a new mom. You know, congratulations. He's growing so fast also, by the way. <laughs> like, I just like, wow. Mm-hmm. Crazy. He's super cute. Yes. You spoke a bit about like the literary lineage that you would want to pass on to him. You know, think about Toni Morrison, and I imagine there's probably a long list of others. And and I guess I'm just curious because your career and what it seems like your mission has centered so much around, you know, increasing the support and the like profile of Black women, like writers and readers. Like, how do you think about framing that challenge and opportunity for him? Wow. <laughs> I am... <laughs> You know, it's wild because Toni Morrison and Paul Marshall uh, both Mm -hmm. had sons. And um, I saw, like, I'm really inspired by the work that Morrison did with her son. Like, she wrote children's books with him. And most recently, when I was working on my second anthology on Girlhood, you know, I was, like, filling Mm -hmm. out the permissions. And I had to write it to the Paul Marshall estate when I, like, got Rena. And and it went to her son. And I was like, oh, like, this is, you know, the connection of just, like, you know, I really see my son having a beautiful hand in the creation of the Mm -hmm. work that I'm building. Like, I want him to learn about archives. I want him to read Toni Morrison alongside, like, James Baldwin. I want him to read all the things. And I'm excited for him to learn about legacy and learn about how to like give back to your community in a really formative way. Uh, And I want that like process to start early. Like right now he's like, can you just give me Elmo? And I'm like, we're doing the boys. (laughs) Let that child watch Elmo. Like, like, no, we're going to do, we're learning about Marcus Garvey right now. (laughs) You know, so I, um, and it's made me think about the, education process and all the things that like I didn't learn in in school early on. Like, I mean, I honestly, I don't even think I understood slavery for real, for real. I was like, wait, did somebody make this up? Like, it doesn't seem, like, it doesn't what? make sense <laughs> like, as a child. It doesn't like, make it sense. does not make sense. Uh-uh. It doesn't. It's just like, wait, what? And especially my my very free-spirited, bubbly, like, fun child is full of life. So I I know it's going to be heartbreaking mm. to even teach him that. Mm. And, but I'm ready because I do feel that kids mm-hmm. can comprehend more than we give them credit for. And I want him to be, like, a student of history and understand the power of, you know, just being a radical person and understanding like black Mm. history. And I think at the core of all of these movements, whether they're online or off, it's about Mm. understanding history. Mm. And so he's going to be reading the banned (laughs) books. (laughs) He's going to be like all the reports, like the book report central. My mama had me doing book reports all the time. (laughs) It is going, that's like one thing I will take, you know, into my like motherhood toolbox 
And I just want him to understand just like he is valued and have like a beautiful reflections of him and everything. Like we have so many incredible children's books that have like black and brown kids mm-hmm. all over the place. Like he just has all of that to see. Um, and I'm excited to even start to explore that process as I continue to build out well-read black girls. So there could be like a well-read mm. junior and mm. we look, look at children's books and, you know, and I do have aspirations to write a children's book. Mm. And so I'm, I'm like doing all the things because I want it to be a more welcoming and more affirming space for my son and for mm. all children. Well, Glory, look, I'm going to tell you something. The way that you have <laughs> gathered all of mm-hmm. us together to do something as slow and requiring as much attention as reading does <laughs> in a world where those time and attention are hard to come by, I think you're going to do just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And thank Aww, you so much. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much for joining us. Seriously. It's been so much yeah. fun. It's been awesome. It has been so much it's fun. It's even better because we haven't caught up in forever too. Just like, yeah. I know. So it's, this has been great. And one more quick update before we go. Since we recorded this episode, Well-Read Black Girl announced that they will be launching a new literary series in 2023. Through their partnership with Live Right Publishing Corporation, Well-Read Black Girl will publish two books a year with a specific focus on debut fiction by women and non-binary authors with a special emphasis on writers of color and other traditionally marginalized backgrounds. We cannot wait to check them out. For Colored Nerds is created by me, Brittany Luce, and Eric Eddings. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams and social producer Elise Ellis. Marcus Hom is our engineer, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love you all so much, so please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds. And never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. The Tito's handmade vodka was ice cold, condensation trickling down the copper metal shaker. It's got to be fresh lime, they drawled. Tart, but balanced. They weren't normally this finicky about cocktail hour. But with Tito's? It had to be perfect. Simple syrup, the final ingredient. The sound of shaking filled the room to the brim. For the perfect pour at next week's book club, try the Tito's Gim Literature. Find the recipe at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly.